Welcome to another episode of the Friday Film Club and this week is a particularly special one because uh, unless you've been hiding in a shed uh, you know that it's Oscars weekend, uh, the biggest night in Hollywood and I've decided as this is the first year that I've been incredibly detached from the films nominated for Oscars that I would rope in uh, film critic extraordinaire Van Connor to do me a bit of educating. Thank you for having me on, Liam. It's, it's a genuine pleasure. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're doing this. It's always nice to hear your uh, your thoughts on films, to be honest. Yeah, um, they're going to be a little bit limited uh, when it comes to this year's <laughs> batch of, of nominees. But uh, yeah, we'll try and keep it quite broad. Well, it's been it's been a long pandemic, so it's it's completely understandable to be out of touch with the with, with the film world. I mean, I know like you know week of release film critics who genuinely say the same thing. Like now, like Matt Turner will say to me every year, like what 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 do you think of the awards ones this year? Because I can't tell, and I'll I'll be like, well, surely it's got to be this list of forty, and <laughs> you know I'll I'll WhatsApp them in over and go, oh yeah, I've seen most of these, thanks, but I've not you know that one. And we do have this back and forth, and it's usually just before the nominations come out, and then we find out like. Like which ones actually do get the time of day and which ones don't. Um, this is one of those amusing ones as well that you get as a critic. You get um, you get these award screeners through every year. Do you know about these? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get like the like cardboard special award season sleeved versions, like a DVD copy of the film, and they're made to like a proper professional standard. Obviously, and they look like limited edition things. And I've got a whole <laughs> shelf in my living room covered in these. And uh, you are supposed to, full disclosure, you are supposed to destroy them, but I don't think anyone actually does then we just keep them as collectors because what are they going to do take you for piracy it's out in the world by then you're supposed to destroy them like a year later anyway um so you get these these little award screeners and uh, the ones they send you are like for your consideration Mm -hmm. right so you get like maybe 50 of these things through every november december and there's loads of films that you've never heard of in your life that might have like one actor that you vaguely heard of and they're, and they're put up for consideration. You're like, oh, okay. I, and you don't know whether or not to watch some of them because you know that you'll never ever hear about them. Because you, you get a little bit excited about them. There's, there's live loads of award screeners like for movies that big studios thought were going to be a big deal that just evaporated past both critics and the public. You know, that star, like people who like a year later will become a huge deal. And mm. so it's... Very, very strange. I've got umpteen ones that star Amy Adams. I don't know what it is about <laughs> Amy Adams. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the reason I say that is because there's one this year that Bex and I reviewed on off screen called, I think it's The Eyes of Tammy Faye. It was only about like three or four weeks ago. And it stars uh, Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield. Mm-hmm. And I think we said at the time, it's the kind of thing you put out with the faint hope that it'll get, you know, get you into award season but it never does and it did actually wind up getting it that was one of those that i looked at and thought this is the award screener that comes through my door yeah. that i don't watch and that we never hear about ever again it's like i've got a film called brian banks i think that seems to star like known people same thing yeah yeah i remember uh, in my days of uh, reviewing films the number of screeners i'd get through and there was always a whole batch of films that would come out kind of back end of a year that were they, they weren't particularly good. They weren't even particularly entertaining. They were just made to try and crack the award circuit. And 90% of them just fall through because, because they're just not very good films. No, that is, that is that is it. In a nutshell, that is that is absolutely the case. Mm. It is, you know, I think, to, to be honest, the best parody anyone ever did of the Oscars um, came... 
amazingly, of all places, from the TV show um, American Dad, which was, I think, Roger the Alien had, they did like a mock Bond episode, and his evil plan to take over the world, Bond villain style, was to create, he'd come up with a movie called Oscar Gold. And it was it was a parody of like everything to do with the Academy Awards, but it cut deeper than even Tropic Thunder had. And I think it had like Roger the Alien as like a blind, disabled uh, <laughs> young boy in, in the Holocaust in Nazi Germany being like shelled around him. And it was it was the most like horrific, harrowing thing anyone had come up with. And the joke of the episode was that everyone who even watched the trailer was moved to tears and applauded <laughs> at the end. And it's it's the greatest parody anyone has ever come up with for award season uh, for me. And so many films just like it. The only thing that's ever come close to that may be Tropic Thunder. <laughs> yeah, and Tropic Thunder, for anyone who hasn't seen it, uh, why haven't you seen it? Because it's a great film. Oh, yeah. You know. Um, and yeah, Robert Downey Jr., best performance of his career. And I'm including Iron Man in that. <laughs> And he was Oscar nominated for that. Everyone forgets that. Robert Downey Jr. did get Oscar. Like we, it's amazing when you consider that that kind of did bypass popular culture. I don't know if you remember the controversy at the time Mm -hmm. with Tropic Thunder. There was controversy because of what was perceived to be a a, a mockery of the disabled within the film. Now, I will argue. I'm a fan of the film, admittedly, but I will, you know, argue unbiasedly there that that was done within the context of parodying the exact thing it was not even parodying but satirizing the sort of mindset like Mm. they are playing characters who believe that's okay and the joke is that they believe that that is okay and it is not Mm. but that they think they have found an acceptable way to do it that's the gag and that controversy somehow overshadowed the fact that Robert Downey Jr. was doing all this in blackface. <laughs> Which, if you made that movie yeah. now, it wouldn't even get seen. The movie would not get seen by enough people for that point to take hold now. Yeah. And yet somehow it, sk- it skirted by then and it got an Oscar nomination. Which is, bizarre. let's not forget, an Oscar nomination the same year that a posthumous Oscar went to Heath Ledger as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very true. And uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, how the Oscars have or maybe haven't uh, gotten more progressive uh, over the the last 20 years or so. Um, But let's dive into some of the questions. So as uh, anyone who's listened to the show before knows that there's there's six standard questions I throw at all the guests. This is an Oscar special, so I've mixed it up a little bit. And let's let's dive straight in. So what is your favourite Oscar winner of all time? Right. No, I, I, mean, I didn't want to delve too deeply into this with you in advance because I, I like an I like an off the cuff answer. Most of my my opinions are sort of long formed on the Oscars anyway. Um, I should explain at some point. I'm I'm quite anti Oscar in, in a lot of ways. When you say Oscar winner, though, do you mean like person or film, like actor or film or director? Or what? I'm I'm going with film on this. My my favorite Oscar winning film. There's a couple that leap out within my lifetime as oh my god holy shit i can't believe that actually won oscars most recent example obviously there would be parasite because mm-hmm. i we we did oscar night, bex and i did oscar night with with paul ross as we did like the, the three previous years i'm hoping we get to do it again this year it was a purely over the phone thing last year not the same but uh, we we covered that the year that parasite won and the the the, the sort of prevalent feeling was in advance of that was that 1917 was going to win mm-hmm. and that it would have been yet another victory for what is my you know, 
ongoing, you know, existent issue with, uh, with with the Academy and the Oscars, which is it's the same old shit, different day, same shit, different year. There's only three mm-hmm. films that win Oscars, and we just we vary them up each year. It's a shell game of which of the same three films will win. Is it going to be the war epic, or is it going to be the slave epic, or is it going to be the black guy and white guy in a car movie? You, you know, the Driving Miss Daisy movie. Is it going to be we solve racism through Uber driving? That movie. It's that. Which one of these three movies are we going to give the Oscar to every year? And when Parasite won, there was that feeling. And it, it had just been so long. We said, oh, my God. Holy shit. Something that deserves it, something from outside of the system, has won. And I wasn't even yeah. thinking, like, when, when that announcement came in, and I know that, you know, the, the, the director award had already gone out, because I know that, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was the, the first film to win Best Foreign Language and then actually win Language as well, and there was that achievement in there. But I really was stunned, more than anything, genuinely, and just taken aback, oh, my God, something that deserved to win Best Picture actually won. <laughs> Black Panther couldn't finish yeah. this. But Parasite could. Get Out couldn't manage this. But Parasite could. Like, a movie that's actually, quantifiably, the best thing you saw in a cinema that year. One best Mm. picture. Which is just unheard of. Because I don't know if you remember, (laughs) Gravity didn't win best picture. I think 12 Years a Slave did. Yeah. What? And we must also remind everyone, Crash won best picture. Oh yeah, I mean that, that that feeds into my my thing about like that that feeds into that's that's really the the uh, the black guy and white guy in an Uber solve racism <laughs> yeah. you know, archetype because you know you, otherwise there's nothing really between driving Miss Daisy and and, and green, green Room really, um, but yeah. that's Green Room Green Book not Green Room Green Room is a very very different mm. movie to Green Book first of all I think Green Room is definitely better movie than Green Book because how often does Patrick's Patrick Sir Patrick Stewart get to play a neo-Nazi and try and kill young Chekhov I mean that's a movie yeah. right there that, that's a motion picture right there but uh, no the, the films that deserve to win never win Crash was one of those that you just sat there and thought yes you've given it best picture but what you have just exemplified by doing that is this is the best picture that anybody who works at the Academy or as a film critic saw. And even then, not my level of film critic, not me as a film critic, but the, the broadsheet level of the cardigan critic. You know what I mean? Like yeah, no, yeah. Nobody in the real world gives a shit about Crash. Nobody yeah. saw Crash. If you ask someone what the movie Crash is about, I've got folding money, says the first person that's, that recognises the name thinks you mean the Cronenberg version where they fuck in the wreckage of car crashes. <laughs> that's a valid point, yeah. Um, and you know what, going back to Parasite, I think, you know, absolutely yes, Parasite was the best film uh, of the year yeah. and deserved to win. But what I think made that win even more impressive is there was this very Hollywood film, a big war epic, Mm. that was technically very impressive. And you could argue, wouldn't have been a bad Best Picture winner. Not at all. It wouldn't have Um, been a bad one, but it uh, would have been safe. Yeah, but even being against a film which was the safer choice among the Academy, Parasite still won. (laughs) And I think even even among Parasite fans, Mm. and I think everyone kind of wanted Parasite to win, anyone who'd seen Parasite wanted Parasite to win, um, was still surprised that that happened. 
No, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and, and that's it. That, that's it. 1917. I don't think anyone would complain. No, no one would have complained. And it, it, it's fine. You know, it, it was absolutely like, who can complain? It's like best actor going to Akeem Phoenix. I think it was, this was, again, this was 2019. Because that's the last sort of proper mm-hmm. pre-pandemic uh, Oscars that we have to really go by. Because the, the, you know, the Oscars we've had since haven't quite cut the same. Like last year was in no way the same. And... And the show itself did suffer for it. And also our our awards contenders, I think, suffered to an extent as well, because, you know, the film release pattern had been so radically shifted by this once-in-a-lifetime event, this once-in-a-century occurrence. And, you know, the last time there was a pandemic, mm-hmm. we didn't really have a film industry. So... You know, we, we haven't really gotten yeah. to properly, you know, I think Chapl- Chaplin was still king of the hill the last time we had a pandemic, you know? <laughs> Let's look at the complete other end, because I feel like this is, you, you've probably gonna, <laughs> got a lot to say about this one. Uh, what's your least favourite Oscar winner? Oh, my least favourite Oscar. Sorry, can I just PS on the back of that last one? If, if you had gone yeah, with person gone. on, fa- on favourite Oscar winner, my answer to that, without even really thinking about it, would be Nicolas Cage. Just because I don't <laughs> think there's ever been such a brilliantly batshit nuts at person after winning an Oscar. Like, no one's been that nuts since... Other than Gary Busey, I think. Gary Busey and Nicolas Cage are in a league of their own. Because we all forget about Gary Busey and the Oscar love. Yeah. But uh, in terms of my least, my least favourite Oscar, are we going with movie again? Least favourite movie? Yes, movie, yeah. Right. Um... I could oh oh there's 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 one that there's one that gets me into trouble whenever I talk about and there's then there's uh I tell you what I'm gonna say I'm gonna say life is beautiful. Life is beautiful starring Roberto Benini. Right. Okay. This is one answer. I have several for this. Right. <laughs> Uh, this in 1999, which is the year that I believe uh, Life is Beautiful won Best Actor for Roberto Benigni. That that's the year I think for me when I had long had my thoughts that the Academy and the Oscars and the film industry was all like snotty, who knows who elitist, cardigan wearing bullshit. And it was that year that really hammered it home for me. The year in which Tom Hanks got overlooked for best actor for saving Private Ryan in, in, in favour of Roberto Benigni for Life is Beautiful. And I was just sat there thinking to myself, I, I, was, I remember watching the film and I was like 15 at the time. And I just thought to myself like, I get that he's a really good expressive performer, but I don't speak Italian. So, he could literally be reading me the phone book and trolling me while I'm doing this. How the hell am I... I am judging this as a physical and emotive performance, which means I'm already doing it kind of a disservice. And I've always had this issue, and I do think there should actually be a separate category in the Academy Awards, because for that wave, this is one of those answers, like I say, it's problematic. I accept that it's problematic. Please understand that this is not coming from any place other than how does the Academy, which is largely made up of people whose first language is English, how can the Academy fairly judge performances not in a language they speak as a primary language? You know what I mean? And there are exceptions yeah. to that to an extent because a, a larger a larger percentage of people, for instance, speak Spanish in the world than speak than speak not the same almost said Mandarin there, which is ludicrous. Of course, <laughs> more people would speak Mandarin than would speak nuts. But you know what I mean? Then would then then yeah. would then, yeah. then would speak uh, I don't know, pick any random smaller scale language. But 
it, it's one of those things where I do think, I think that should be a category. And this is one of my anti-Oscar things. I think there should be more Oscar categories. I mm-hmm. want a best stunts category. I want a best foreign language performance, a best performance in a non-English language you yeah. know, category. I, I want all of the, I want sound to go back to being two categories. I want that best blockbuster category in, which is one of the stupidest ideas the Academy ever came out with. But <laughs> there, you could, you could potentially... You could yeah. make that work if you yeah. really wanted. You know what I mean? Highest grossing, highest grossing film of the year should have an Oscar because mm. it's the only way the most popular movie of the year ever will. You know what I mean? Like the Avengers problem. Like yeah. there was no bigger game in town that year than Avengers Endgame. It's, it, you know, it was the biggest movie of all time. Twice, I believe. <laughs> but at the same time, it's not going to get any Oscars unless it's going to be in things like visual effects and stuff like yeah. that. Why is there not a best popcorn Oscar? But that Roberto Benini pipping Tom Hanks in 99, that really ticked me off. <laughs> that ticked me off in a way that the English patient, a movie so spectacularly undeserving of actual praise that it got an entire Seinfeld episode dedicated to exactly that, somehow still couldn't. Yeah. No, I agree. And as far as categories go, I think there's a lot of issues with the categories. And I think you're right. They need to be, they need to find a way to, and uh, to, to recognize the, the sort of nuances that don't currently get celebrated or maybe shouldn't be celebrated in the current categories. Mm. And I think the, 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 the glaring um, example there is I think you, you get rid of gendered acting categories and you replace them with categories based on. Uh, I don't know, genre or type of performance, you know, the, as you said. No, you, I actually, I agree with you there. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, we're, we're definitely past the point where we need to separate um, gendered categories, uh, or sorry, uh, performances by gender. Um, and in fact, I had uh, James Luxford on the show uh, a few weeks back, and he did make the valid point that if we did that right now, we'd probably end up with um, 90 men and Meryl Streep. Which, which is the problem, <laughs> you know, you know, we, and, and no, that that's is, absolutely, it's, it's absolutely true. I give I grant you that entirely. And to be fair, that's a fault of the industry entirely, just because there are simply nowhere near as good, a, a good, a, 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 a number of roles for women still, which is ludicrous. When you get to the end of the year and you start making, you'll see this actually when it gets to the voting time. Like I have to do my my critics voting thing that I, I do every, uh, which I'll be really honest. I usually like formula, I, I spend weeks thinking of the answers and I spend so long stewing on them that I then forget to email them through. And I only ever remember for some reason every year on a night out and I wind up doing it on my phone from like a <laughs> pub or a club or something. Like true, true story, that happens to me. Like, every Christmas um but you get to that point when you you have to think of like who's the best performance you saw and this is for instance this is the online critic circle for instance they ask Mm. and you can type anything in like it's left you to type anything who's the best like male performance you saw this year and then you think oh okay well here's 50 to choose from in my head for instance and then you notice that you can have 50 actors Mm. and you can have 10 actresses and it's not because of anything other than there's simply that there's that percentage of of roles. There's that literally there are five times more, you know, roles going out there. The big showy Oscar winning, you know, Oscar worthy kind of roles going out there. Yeah. 
Yeah. And meanwhile, the actresses are getting stiff. The African American actresses are getting stiff. The, you know, and people are all getting stiff. Yeah. Everyone except, you know, certain age and ethnicity generally. But you know, in terms of in terms of roles. But and you do tend to find as well, the more interesting performances do tend to come from everyone outside of that category. I mean, I remember what was the year when we were looking at the uh, there was a year when we were looking at the best actress. Uh, list and we just like this is so unimaginative and it was a, a list in which you thought a best supporting actress that was it, it was like why mm -hmm. is best supporting actress not got JLo in for hustlers give us something interesting because that was actually a fascinating role and just the fact yeah. that it was JLo it worked yeah I think it was the same year I was thinking why was Lupita Nyong'o not up for best actress for us like other than the fact that the academy has historically ashamed of uh, uh, science fiction horror like the, mm -hmm. well horror more than science fiction nowadays like Science fiction seems to have windled its way in now, but horror, the Academy is still quite terrified of, unless Jordan Peele's the guy bringing it in. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I for one, uh, was furious at how little Us was recognised at the Oscars. Um, and I, I also have a big issue with the supporting category. I think it's become a, a kind of backup choice for studios to campaign people who aren't quite strong enough to go for lead. That was the. I'm trying to remember what the movie was. I was it. It was Judas and the Black Messiah last year, mm. when they were trying to work out when it got to the nominations, and it was just this is fucking ludicrous. Like <laughs> you've literally told the lead of the movie here that he's the supporting guy, and the other, and then also the other way around. Yeah, like it was bizarre that because it was it's kind of debatable as to who the lead in Judas and the Black Messiah is, and then they just they decided arbitrarily after the fact but just to explain how that works by the way um that is more or less entirely determined by the studio mm -hmm. like every time and the way that works is that on the on the award screen is obviously we get as you can attest it tells us the categories that they would like the film to be nominated for yeah. and Believe me, I've got some hilarious ones because somewhere around here I've got a copy of Transformers The Last Night in which Paramount <laughs> genuinely wanted that nominated for Best Picture, which might be the single greatest case of optimism I have ever heard in my life. At the same time, I also have a screener for Deadpool 2 with, for your consideration, Best Supporting Actor, TJ Miller. I mean, come on, people. Yeah, yeah. For anyone, for people that don't really know the rules and the 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 kind of mechanics behind the Oscars, there's there's this huge gap in the in the kind of the rubrics that, uh, especially around the acting categories, which you were alluding to, whereby there is no definition of what constitutes a leading performance or a supporting yes. performance. So studios throw a lot of money telling people mm. to vote for a certain performance in a certain category. And people generally just go with that, which is baffling. That is, that is absolutely the case. But it's, I mean, having to explain that as well is in a sense kind of tied to the intricacies of just the very core nature of how all of this stuff works in the first place, which is those screener discs and all the promo materials that they ship out to people like you and me, of course, are paid for by the studio. The studio has a publicity department. That publicity department has an awards sub-department. You know, they've got a room, room full of cubicles. One of those cubicles is dedicated entirely to awards or, you know, is for a certain amount of the year. And that person's job is entirely to send out 
boxes of promotional merch to people who vote for awards. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, I want to send out to all the critics, I badly want Bradley Cooper to win Best Actor for Nightmare Alley. I, the publicist here at Fox Searchlight or whatever it's called, there is it Fox Studios? Um, I have decided I would like Bradley Cooper to win Best Actor. So here is um, a copy of the hardback book of Nightmare Alley. Here is a screener of the film. Here is an action figure of Guillermo del Toro, uh, signed by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, it, please accept this FedEx package, which ludicrous amount of shipping we're going to have to pay for all this because we're doing it to 35,000 people. Poor Guillermo's wrist. Uh, please vote for us when the award season comes around. So the obvious thing there is... No one who's starring in a film that doesn't have that publicity budget is getting considered for that award. Mm. So let's never, ever, for a second, ever assume that merit is a valid consideration <laughs> in any of these categories, because it's not. Yeah. You could have the greatest movie in the world. doesn't matter if you've not got the publicity budget to, at, at the very least, make that screener disc and just send that in a you know standard manila envelope through the post. You've got to get our screener discount or a link now. Like that's the thing. That's been the equalizer actually. Mm. The pandemic shifting us all to screener links a lot more yeah. has brought about some change in that regard. So you will start to see smaller films filter through in due course mm. if they have you know the, the online links being sent through, which is now happening a lot more often. I was very I was very happy to see something like Palm Springs this last year get like put forward for serious Oscar contention. Great, it got picked up by Neon. I think it wound up on like Amazon Prime in the UK. Great yeah. movie. Hearing that in awards contention, that was wonderful. Yeah, um, I think the just viewing habits as well, like what, what's resonant with people is definitely changing over the last couple of years. Because, you know, you, you, you know, you've got to think the films, there's a lot of great films out there, but only a few become a success only if you get seen so you you've got to factor in the the impacts that environment and context makes to our our appreciation of films you know and sometimes it's potluck a great film could be released one year and just not hit but if it was released a couple of years earlier or later it would hit that's that's just the nature right that first of all that's called the daniel craig problem and uh, well actually not daniel craig. so that's the timothy dalton problem the timothy dalton problem is that if you take the same movie and you release it 15 years later it goes down a lot better than when you did it before which is to say if you have the gritty dramatic bond in 1987 people don't like it if you have gritty dramatic bond in 2005 everybody for some reason loves it <laughs> just because the times of it's a very I always refer to it as the Timothy Dalton problem because some things yeah. just don't work when. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. couldn't have gotten away with doing Ghostbusters Afterlife 10 years earlier, for instance. You had to wait until the culture was annoyed enough <laughs> about the previous one. You know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a valid point. And, you know, on the subject of uh, things that wouldn't have worked 20, 30 years ago, uh, the Oscars have announced three women are hosting the ceremony this year. Um, which is a big step forward for them and certainly a welcome one. Which brings me on to my next question for you. If you mm. were to host the Oscars, who would you have as your co-host, if anyone? No, I'll be honest, this was stumping me. This was this was really stumping me. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, I, my, my, my fantasy answer is like Seth Rogen. Like I would, I, I feel like <laughs> Seth Rogen and I would be great friends. Which, funnily enough, I think is a line that he comes out with in one of his 
In fact, it is. It's a movie. It's a line from a Seth Rogen movie. Because I think he says it about Vince Vaughn in Knocked Up. He's like, I feel like he and I would be buds. I guess I have the same <laughs> Seth Rogen. Um, I don't know. I have yep. str- I have strange real world answers as well. I'd love to do because I, I, I one person I would love to present anything with Alex Zane, a friend of mine. I, I would love to do something like present you with Alex. Other fancy answers. My my fiance. I think would be hilarious. Um, I have loads of strange answers. Tony Earnshaw. Tony Earnshaw. I think would be great. He's a, a writer. For at the Yorkshire Post, uh, writes a lot of horror stuff, uh, the horror stories of Lawrence Gordon, things like that, and I've worked with him on a couple of things over the years. And he is one of the driest men alive. Like he is, he looks exactly, like if you can ever meet him in the flesh, he looks like Toby Stevens from Lost in Space and Die Another Day. You know, he looks like Toby Stevens in a barber coat kind of thing. Um, but he's, he is just one, he's one of the most hilarious men alive. But he has, and a part of it is just that he is just so dry, so deadpan. And he's absolutely brilliant with it. Um, other one, uh, John Mosby, a friend of mine, another one, a mutual friend of, of Tony Earnshaw, certainly. Also great to present anything with. I, I know a lot of really good presenters that I, I would love to present things with. I think the Oscars would be the time. If you're doing the fantasy one, though, it'd be like Seth yeah. Rogen. It'd be like, because I would want to do that. I would want to be like, Seth, I'm nervous, man. I'm about to go on what we're going to do. And he'll be like, here, smoke this. And you'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> Seth Rogen, smoke pop, Seth Rogen, what an honor. You know, you, it would be Kevin Smith, same, kind of the kind of the same answer would be mm. Kevin Smith. Because I grew up, well, up worshiping Kevin Smith. <laughs> or, um, you know, and I, someone whose who's vibe I enjoy as much as their actual work. Because that's always a big thing yeah. for me as well. I have to, like the people I name, for instance, it tends to be that I like their work as much as I like generally their vibe and tone and energy. So people like Seth Rogen and Kevin Smith tend to be sort of the, the kind of talent I gravitate towards in terms of my entertainment. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and So as a kind of side question, what do you think has been the the most disastrous Oscar hosting stint of all time? I think everyone always defaults to James Franco, don't they nowadays? Like everyone <laughs> comes back with oh Hathaway and Franco every time you think you come on. Come That's on, the there's been some doozies over this. People forget, like hosting the Oscars. Is like, like that's that's not what sinks the Oscars. Like you can have the best no. host or the worst host, right? That's not what sinks the Oscars. What sinks the Oscars more often than not tends to be the celebrities, they, the previous winners that they wheel out to read the new winners, <laughs> to read out the newest. They tend to be the people that sink the show. One of the most, probably the, the most famous Oscar thing in recent years was obviously the the, the incorrect result for. I, and I always forget which way around it went now. Was it Moonlight or La La Land? Whichever one. I, and yeah. it was that incorrect result. And you sit and think, like, you remember that and how that derailed the show more than you even vaguely remember who hosted <laughs> that. I can't tell you who hosted that year. Couldn't tell you. Yeah. For the, put a gun to my head. And I can't <laughs> tell you who hosted that year. But I can tell you it was Fade Dunaway and Warren Beatty at that moment. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And do you know what? I think if they if they orchestrated more... Um, so bad, it's great kind of moments at the Oscars. I think they, their viewing figures would be a lot higher, but they, they, they're just obsessed with having a really glossy, seamless ceremony that's incredibly uh, self-congratulatory. And frankly, um, there's like 7 billion of us around the world that just don't care about that. We just... <laughs> Once good TV, mm, I mean, right? It, sh- it showed. It really showed uh, when you saw all the all the trappings stripped away. 
last year with the the panda the only pandemic era ceremony that we've had so far because i think yeah. i don't think this year is going to count and it'll be a lot more normal this year for instance than than before but i think when you saw all the trappings stripped away last year and you saw those celebrities packed into that union square sort of yeah. uh, amphitheater room that they had i think you realized in actuality this, this this really is just like you know 20 actors in a room you know, like no, no one's that excited about it. this is 20 actors in a room and the guy winning best actor wasn't allowed to do it on video so cool see you next year and <laughs> you know one of, one of those weird things like because yeah. obviously the whole thing last year was they had constructed a sort of a narrative to how they had uh how they had narratively woven the show which was yeah. obviously that was meant to meant to end with a posthumous win for Chadwick Boseman his widow would get up there and, and make the speech and it would be a very moving and emotional thing and it would send us off on the right note and during the pandemic it was kind of what we would have needed it would have been the perfect no it would have said something I think during yeah. the pandemic we've all lost people this year we've, we've even lost some of the best talents around you know yeah. and, uh, and and the way they did it just it it really did feel like that was an establishment choice it's not to belittle anthony hopkins performance which is tremendous by the way because obviously hopkins won for the for the father it is a tremendous performance in a tremendous film but it ain't no chadwick boseman in ma rainey's black bottom you know what i mean yeah oh yeah i mean i loved boseman's performance but i have to say um all you know the the, the sadness of of his death aside i loved the fact that the Academy thought that they could control the narrative to such an extent that they could yeah. predict what turned out to be the unpredictable, build an entire ceremony around it, yep. and then it will just come crashing down. Because you've got to think about it as well. You've got to think of it as like the Legion of Doom, like as depicted in The Simpsons with Mr. Burns and all the people around the table. You've got to think of all the Academy as being like people like that, just looking around. So we're all on the same page, right? We, we give it to, to, to the Chad kid, the dead one. Yeah, okay, cool. We'll do that. That that works. Apparently it's a good story. We'll do that. Okay. We're all, uh, yep, okay, check. <laughs> and then it just turns out that nobody, they were all just like, screw you, I'm going to vote for Tony. And <laughs> I, I do feel like that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, like it does yeah. believably feel like that's what happened. But the ceremony being staged the way it was did just kind of show what the Oscars really were, which is, this is just a PR exercise. It's just some people in a room. There's no magic to this. Yeah, Like any yeah. magic is... It's, it's like Bitcoin or art. It's like, look, it's like money is a fundamental concept. Only value comes from the value we actually place upon it. It's the reason that cryptocurrency exists. You know, mm. we determine a value on something as a society. and We've decided the Oscars have that because of the level of glamour associated with it. When you saw that last year, that did kind of, mm, that did kind of drop the curtain a little bit. Yeah, and I, I understand how that sheen kind of falls away a little bit and people people really hated on the ceremony last year i think i i'm in that very very small minority that kind of liked it I, I liked that it was a bit more stripped back and I, I i think they could learn a lot from that in future ceremonies um i, I think a lot of people hated on it so maybe they're going to go back to traditional sort of thing this year yeah. um but yeah 
I'm with you. I'm with you. I I completely. I mean, I'm I'm on record as calling the Oscars Cinema Super Bowl or the Cinematic Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, because that, that that's what it is. It's the big event on our calendar. That's yeah. that's it's kind of the biggest. There's nothing comes close. Mm-hmm. But what what possibly compares? I mean, award season. You know, obviously is is the event on the calendar. But the cherry of award season is the Oscars. There's a reason it kind of ends with that as a big ceremony. It all tails off from there. Yeah. And like every year, for instance, we always have the big question: What's the first blockbuster? Out the gate after after that best picture gets nominated, and it is always interesting every year to see what the first one is. I think Marvel have had it a couple of years, and I mean, don't get me wrong, you'll you'll never see one of those win best picture. Like it'll never happen. But uh, you always find like every now and again you do find one is like the first picture out the gate after after the awards. You're like, "Uh, that's kind of amusing. Okay, I, I I think the worst thing will be if you're a filmmaker. And you make something you're really proud of. It's this really like strong drama, and you, you're talking to the studios and like, yeah, we've made a decision. Uh, we've got the release sort of plan in mind. Um, and you're like, great, we're releasing in February. You'd be like, ah, oh, you know, because uh, no yeah, one again, you see, that's about the same kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Because everyone's every, by by February, you've got your list. You you've got your nominees by February. Yeah. So you know the ten to fifteen films that are absolutely unmissable this award season. And yeah. we've got it. I watched Power of the Dog last night. I, I had missed this. I didn't get to review this as Maria Duarte covered it for the for the Morning Star. And I didn't, I don't think I got linked through Netflix on time. It's why we didn't do it for off screen. Uh, so I sat and I watched The Power of the Dog last mm-hmm. night. And it was a case of, first of all, gorgeous looking movie, but it's absolutely what I expect from a Jane Campion movie. Terrific Benedict Cumberbatch performance, but absolutely what I expect from Benedict Cumberbatch performance. <laughs> and there was there were so many parts to it though that I was just looking at thinking, this is so basic. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the heavy runner for this year. Like mm-hmm. this is is it leading with 12, I think leads with 12 nominations. Yeah, I think yeah. the runner-up is Dune with 11. <laughs> and and first of all. I, I, I could write a book on why Dune having 11, 11 Oscar nominations is hilarious <laughs> for all the best reasons, for all the best reasons and all the most, all the most insane reasons in the world. Dune having 11 Oscar nominations is just brilliantly nuts. I'm here for it. Pour that in me. I wanted to just give that all the Oscars and I'll be laughing my ass off until doomsday for both right and wrong reasons. But the power of the dog, I was just watching this thinking, it's very strange because Jane Campion was dead. As, as a cinematic auteur, mm-hmm. Jane, Campion's, Jane, Jane Campion's career was over. Like she had effectively ended Meg Ryan's reign as America's sweetheart. And, you know, because, because it's all because of in the cut, effectively. And then from there, it just seemed to get worse. Every Jane Campion movie that came out. She picks, gets a movie picked up with Netflix, though, and oh my god, she's been treated like Greta Gerwig, like not not since Greta Gerwig, not since the news of Greta Gerwig is directing an adaptation of Little Women, have I seen a film so rapturously embraced by people who have not seen it than Power of the Dog? Because I watched, it was just like, and they're, they're obviously there's all this heap of praise upon like Jesse Plemons, and I'm just like. 
where the fuck were you people all these years when he was going off being consistently being the most awesome thing in everything <laughs> he was starring in? Yeah. This guy managed to take a Hollywood comedy that nobody cared about, Game Night, and make it absolutely unforgettable purely by simply standing there stroking a dog. <laughs> I mean, good Lord. And, and, and then the basic, the performance from, from Kirsten Dunst was like, yeah, but I feel like she was interchangeable in this because this was a what we call a lip quiver role. And it's a problem that I this is something that I really do feel for any any actress these days who, who wants to be taken seriously on, on the award spectrum, which is how many of the best actress nominees, best actress and best supporting actress nominees, and this is not something that gets ported across the gender gender spectrum. This only gets shunted onto women. How many of their roles literally involve, here's my Oscar clip, my lip is quivering, I have some tears, oh look, I am a bit pastier than usual. <laughs> and you're like, well, why is it when it's the guys, it's always the impassioned speech? Their clip is the impassioned speech when it's the actresses, oh, these are the nominees. And then you get five clips of uh, there's three of them that are pasty, there's tears and lip quivering, there's maybe one that's shouting, and there's maybe one that's mute. <laughs> Whereas every one of the guys, it's, here's my impassioned speech about something. Yeah. yeah. What? That's, it's, and it's, Power of the Dog does that. It's valid, and clearly it works, because they've got four, they've got a nomination in every acting category, haven't they? Yeah. Um, so yeah. That's it. It works. It's packageable. It works within the marketable confines of the established brand of the Oscars. And that's what needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree more. But as we're talking about Power of the Dog and this year's nominees, before I ask you this question, I'm going to caveat that we are recording this on the 1st of March, three weeks before the Oscars. So we are like one PR scandal away from, uh, from this becoming wildly inaccurate. But... What are your predictions for main characters this year? Oh, right. You know, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I do think Power of the Dog will kind of walk it. Mm. It's the, the problem with the Oscars, like I say, it is that unstoppable machine. It is, it's the acceptable face of, of broad, broadsheet critic cardigan culture. You know, it, it is what it is. And they'll never, they'll never come a day when, you know, best picture goes to anything fun. Like this, the the word fun will never be used with with anything connected with best pitch. It never ever will. And the closest you get to that maybe is Argo, which works a pretty good thriller, or The Silence of the Lambs, which is just awesome, just one of the best movies ever made. The Silence of the Lambs, like we've got kind of rare example of a film that deserved it winning. This year, it's it's going to be the power of the dog this year. And it's just going to be, oh, look, Jane yeah. Campion. Made, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's the best Jane Campion movie since The Piano. Like, of course it is. I mean, it's probably a better movie than The Piano, if we're being honest. But she makes art house films. No member of the public, I guarantee you now, any member of the public who's seen the adverts for the power of the dog, now branded with, nominated for 12, 12 Academy Awards, any member of the public, by and large, is go, who has tried to watch The Power of the Dog will have started it, seen the runtime, gone through five to ten minutes of it, thought to themselves, nothing's happened yet, and then just turned it off. Mm. Or maybe they watched it in six chunks. They, maybe they pulled an Irishman and just watched it in six <laughs> chunks, which does kind of reaffirm once and for all that The Irishman really was better off as a streaming series than a movie, incidentally. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, yes or no, 
can the Academy bring themselves to award Best Director the second consecutive year to a woman? Yeah, that one, that astounded me. I was flabbergasted to discover that, that, that Jane Campion was like the first woman to be nominated twice. I was thinking, that's got to be bullshit. That's got to be. <laughs> like, I'm I'm sure Catherine Bigelow, like, got to be Catherine Bigelow. Sh- no, not Catherine. Not Catherine Bigelow. I was devastated. I always, oh, never mind. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, so... <sighs> Who knew that was a thing? But then again, <laughs> as, as we seem to keep discovering, the Academy Awards are uh, not exactly as trailblazing as they as they should be in some regards. I mean, look at Chloe Zhao last year was his second female director to win an Oscar. Yeah, and like you're like that is, and and they were really patting themselves on the back for that. He's thinking, yeah, that's that's all well and good, you know. Yay, we we gave a a, a, a best a best director Oscar to a woman the second time. We're progressive. You're like, you're not that progressive. You've been alive for ninety <laughs> years before you do it the second time. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where it, it would it would be like imagine. <laughs> Imagine you played basketball once, right? And then you played it again 90 years later. You wouldn't describe yourself as a basketball player. You describe yourself as a bad grabbing piece of shit, if we're being honest. But uh, you know what, I mean? Just, what is that? Yeah, no, I agree. And I, you know, I think systemically, I think the problem is that women, and in fact, just anyone that's not a white man, a white straight man, they have to in order to even get considered for a nomination, let alone win, they have to make something sensational. And I think, you know, they have to do so much more to break that barrier. I mean, you, you, that, you're preaching to the choir. You know, Army Hammer got yeah. closest to, closer to an Oscar, closer <laughs> to an Oscar sooner than Spike Lee did. I mean, let's never, <laughs> ever forget that. Army Hammer. Yeah. I mean... Jesus Christ, Army Hammer, which when you consider where Army Hammer is now, it's just incredible. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, Louis C.K. Yeah. Louis C.K. would have been an Academy Award nominee were it not for me too. By now, he I mean, odds are he would have been an mm. Academy Award winner by it because they were gearing him up to be. He was anointed. You know what I mean? There, there, and, yeah. and yeah, it yeah. takes an actual scandal to get any one of the white persuasion, in so much as we classify Louis C.K. as, because you know, I think he's Jewish, isn't he, Louis C.K.? Um, in as much as we classify Louis C.K. as a standard Caucasian man of the industry, it took a scandal to stop that one. But Spike Lee, I mean, really, I always just look at the, cinema, the, the cinematic back catalogue of Spike Lee and think, Jesus Christ. And then you look at Chloe, look at Chloe Zhao winning that Oscar, you think, second woman in 90 odd years. Wow. Yeah. And you look, this is, yes, this is progression, but progression that long after the fact might as well not be considered progression. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they're, they're still, they're, they're considering themselves progressive, but they're still only giving 10% of their Best Director Oscars to women and probably a, a small percentage of their nominations to women. Can we, can we just address that? Let's lay the blame for that one exactly where it deservedly needs to go, which is, again, back at the studios. This is back at the mm. studios. This is, <clears throat> this is any white man can direct, any white guy in his... Follow me on, follow me on this template because I'll start to paint you some examples when I'm done. But 
give me a white guy in his late 20s, early 30s, does a moderate-sized uh, indie hit that is maybe maybe goes down well at a festival. No one ever actually sees it, but he then gets a low-budget, maybe mid-tier studio film. Let's call it five mil for a studio. It gets decent critical buzz. Again, nobody sees it. But because it got that buzz, the studio more or less writes that off. They then reward him by giving him a $150 million to $200 million studio movie sequel, (laughs) usually with a brand IP attached, to do. And even if that bombs... Who cares? He's the anointed one now. He's a blockbuster director. And notice I use the word he. You have to, because it has to be a he. This never happens to women, but it happens to... And, and right, let, let's spit some names out of that particular hat, shall we? Let's talk about <laughs> Trevoro, for instance. Let's talk about J.J. Abrams. Let's talk about Ryan... Mm-hmm. You know, the, these are directors. And the best part is the ones who actually do turn out interesting movies when they get to the uh, the blockbuster stage. It's amazing how quickly the failures see them get shit-canned then. Because there's there's a very specific reason that J.J. Abrams is the director of Rise of Skywalker. There's a very specific reason yep. that Ryan Johnson's not going to get to do his Star Wars sequel trilogy. There is a reason the Game of Thrones guys get to, aren't going to do Star Wars. And that's because, you know, the, the first failure, they're out the door. But Again, not unless they get that, if they get that big branded IP, they actually get that shot. If Colin Trevorrow had gotten to do Rise of Skywalker, it would not have mattered how bad it was. He would have been a blockbuster director <laughs> forever. And, you know, he went from his low-budget yeah. thing to Jurassic World to then go off to make the book of Henry, which was terrible, which then got him kicked off of Star Wars, mm. to then go back and do Jurassic World 2. So these guys just fail upwards. That doesn't happen to black directors. Mm. That doesn't happen to Asian directors that aren't named Dan- Destin Daniel Cretton because his movies seem to just get progressively worse. But to be fair, Shang-Chi, made by a conveyor belt factory, admittedly, is pretty good. But how, look how many crap movies Daniel Destin Cretton got to, to churn out. But he, for some yeah. reason, kind of got swept into that machine. He'll be a blockbuster director forever now. Very few times do you see a director of colour or a, a, a woman or, or non-binary, anything like that. Very, very rarely do you see an up-and-coming uh, director who is not a white man get that leap, that propel upwards, at which point it does not matter. Instantly, it does not matter how bad what they mm. turn out is. And you look yep. at how much shit Paddy Jenkins took for Wonder Woman 84. Yeah. Or Chloe Zhao for Eternal. Yeah, I can't, I can't agree more. Yeah, it's, it just, it's, it's the embedded um, inequality that's still rampant in Hollywood. Um, mm. And we're, we're still a long way from, from correcting that and balancing the scales, unfortunately. And the Oscars, are, unfortunately, also are still a long way from that, no matter how much they profess to be the champions of um, diversity and, and fair representation. They're not. Spoiler alert. <laughs> They're not. Uh, um, so we've got three more questions. Let's, let's do quick fire, get through these questions, and then I'm going to get your final few predictions for this year. So if your life was turned into a movie, which categories yeah. of the Oscars would it be most likely nominated for? Well, first of all, it wouldn't get nominated for an for an Oscar because <laughs> I mean the, the the erotic thriller genre is dead, and uh, I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> wish wish fulfillment. We, we all, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I I'm I'm 38, so I still wish my life was a Zolman King movie, of course. And if you don't know who Zolman <laughs> King is, look up the works of Zolman King. 
and you prepare yourself <laughs> for some absolute cinematic delight. You think you think Duchovny started on the X Files? No, he did not. Um, so, <laughs> that's that's one for the red shoe fans out there. I, I, it'd be a comedy, probably a comedy. If I was, if I was nominated, for, and this is why I still wouldn't get nominated for an Oscar because comedies don't generally get nominated for Oscars. But I think my life would be either a comedy or an absurdist comedy, a tragic comedy, perhaps. Fair enough. What is the first Oscars that you remember watching? I remember this because it was when Nicolas Cage won the Oscar. I really started getting into film when I was uh, when I was about ten. Was when I started to really get into uh, to, to film, like on a, on a serious, like you know, getting to know my directors and like auteur theory and things like. That. I was I was about ten. I think I was I think I was eleven. Actually, I might have been eleven when Cage won the Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas, and I remember because I remember that Nicolas Cage speech, and I remember it being. You know, it's actually it's still, still on YouTube. It's quite a good speech, and uh, I remember it made me actually go and watch. Uh, oh, actually, no, I had already watched Leaving Las Vegas. I lived in Kuwait at the time, where there was no such thing as copyright law, so there was a, a VHS shop on every street corner that just sold like copied VHS tapes, and uh, and so and these cost next to nothing. So you just come home with a stack of new films, <laughs> and I saw so much. I think I watched Leaving Las Vegas and Stargate on the same night. And it was a couple of weeks before the Oscars. But I remember that year, I remember that cage speech. I remember thinking about all the cage movies that had been out around that time and how specifically terrible he had been in some of them. <laughs> and thinking, wow, even this guy can win an Oscar. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, Nicholas Cage, though, let's, let's not forget how incredible a human being he is. And every time that his name gets mentioned on this podcast, I always have to plug the video on YouTube called Nicolas Cage Losing His Shit, which is five minutes of a compilation of every single time in any movie that he has gone mental. Okay, and hang on, hang on. First thing. of all, I, 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 can't let you, I can't let you lay the claim to Nicolas Cage, because first of all, I think it's the, is it the first, I think it was the first 150 episodes, of, maybe the first 150 or 200 episodes of Off Screen, uh, always ended with, we used to do a, 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 you know, an out, a, a podcast extra section on every podcast, so we had the radio edit, and then we had the extras, the films that we couldn't cram in, we used to stick in mm -hmm. podcast extras after the end credits. And because we didn't want to have to come up with another way to sign off every time, we would say, you know, that's been it for Case, that's been it for Van. Here it is. And we knit this from the Daily, we knit this from the Daily Show, admittedly. Uh, here it is, your moment of Cage. And we would just play a random audio clip of Nicolas Cage and, <laughs> and sign off. And I think, that I, honestly, one of the things I'm most impressed about in my entire career is that we made it to, I think it was 200, might have been 200. I think we made it to 200 without ever repeating any of them. And the only time anyone ever commented on it was about a, maybe about 150 or 175 in we played the entire 23 minute long clip of Nicolas Cage reading The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe <laughs> which is just and if you've ever seen Man on the Moon the movie Man on the Moon in which uh, Jim Carrey plays Andy Kaufman and recreates that, fame, that infamous moment in which Andy Kaufman uh, responded to his hecklers at a stand-up show by reading The Great Gatsby. And and that would be his go-to to deal with. Every time someone heckled him, he would just read The Great Gatsby ad nauseum. Mm. And Nicholas Cage just does this with The Raven. And it's, and he takes it completely seriously. Like, he is invested. Like, when Nicholas Cage is reading Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, as you would absolutely imagine, he is living that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, note to anyone uh, that I think there's your plug for off screen anyway. Uh, check out off screen uh, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, it's a great, a great podcast uh, with yourself and uh, Rebecca. Perfect. Uh, I listen to it myself. If you like films, you'll love that. I did not know you listened. Actually, is that actually, is that actually true? Do you actually listen? Uh, occasionally, yeah. I did, not, oh, I'm not. Oh, I, saw, I thought I was just one of those like sort of bullshit things you say for your friends. But thank you. That's no, yeah, not not every week, not every week. But uh, yeah, I, I did fair, fair. I, I, get, I get weird ones actually. You know when you when you encounter do you have have this with any of your shows when friends tell you like they listen to it at weird times, like my uh, my, my my best friend um, I think once told me oh oh I listen to it on on Sundays when I do my ironing. My, I, <laughs> really strange. I think like he specifically listens while he does his ironing. I was like okay, that's strange. Another one said um, oh, I listen to it when I, when I oh that was another one said oh Sunday nights when I take my bath I listen. I'm like what on that. that, that that's not something I needed to know. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I think that the, the thing that I find, um, I guess, a little bit creepy is that I, I know my wife definitely doesn't listen to the podcast. And a lot of my family don't know what a podcast is. Um, and yet I, I, I occasionally get this little spike in listens from um, my area, the area that I live in. And bearing in mind, it's about a two mile radius. And I'm thinking, it's not anyone I know, but it's definitely someone close. You know what it is? You know what it is? It's your mum telling her friends. Right? <laughs> you know, guess what he's doing? Our Liam, you know, guess what our Liam's doing? He's, he's doing this, this like a radio thing, but you put it on your phone. You should have a listen to Paris. It's called this. That's what's, that's what's happening. Our mums are, but well, not my mum, but your mum, right? She's spreading the word, but you know, I don't think my mum is out yeah, podcast. Yeah, it, it... It possibly is. Uh, yeah, I still have to explain uh, on a regular basis to all of my family what a podcast is. Um, so, yeah, there we are. Um, <laughs> I just go with non-time-specific <laughs> radio. That's what it is. Yeah, I just, I just tell them it's radio. You can listen on the internet. Yeah. You know, keep it yeah. simple. Yeah. Uh, but, right, final question to sign off this Oscars special. Uh, what is your ultimate Oscars moment of all time? Ooh, I mean, it's it's hard to top uh, uh, the uh, the moonlight La La Land thing in terms of just sheer dumbassery. Um, oh, ooh, I mean, the King of the World, James Cameron, King of the World. I, I mean, that for me, because that was an example of like, when when Titanic was around. Titanic clearing the Oscars when it did was. A, more of a throwback statement than I think anyone gives it credit for. Mm -hmm. Titanic as a film was interesting in that it did take us back to a cherished time, clearly in the life of James Cameron, which was the time of, you know, a 60s Hollywood epic and a disaster movie. Like That transition point between films like Ben-Hur in the 50s and, mm -hmm. and, and your Spartacuses into then the disaster movies of the 60s and the 70s and, and like maybe early 80s. And Titanic as a film is a fascinating confluence of those, those periods of Hollywood history. But in terms of how it was received by the Academy and the, the praise that got heaped upon it, how it went down with audiences, how it's culturally remembered, it has more in common with the Cleopatra era, with the Ben-Hur era, with mm. the great Hollywood epics than, for instance, the disaster movie. So that half of it tends to overshadow it. And it's a popcorn movie that the Academy simply rubber-stamped. There are examples of this. Lord of the Rings, for instance, is an example of a franchise that was allowed, to, was, was, was legitimised, was given this academic legitimacy. And there are very, very few franchises that do that. Now, when I make that comment about Marvel will never win a best picture, because of that reason, no matter, it can be the biggest game in town, but it won't get legitimised. They won't legitimise it. Mm 
They they made that statement with the very first Star Wars. You know, Woody Allen's legitimate. Annie Hall can be legitimized, and Woody Allen can be legitimized. Star Wars cannot. That was 1977. I mean, it's what 50 years this decade, isn't it? In Star Wars, yeah, so about 45, yeah. 45 years for Star Wars this year, and. You know, a Star Wars movie's never winning an Oscar. I mean, not <laughs> not for a non-technical category. I mean, might win mm. a technical one, but you look at how Cameron's Titanic went down, and that was a movie as well that had such a negative PR wave. And don't forget, most expensive movie of all time, three and a quarter hours long, production disaster. This will ruin the studio. It's gonna tank. <laughs> it's gonna sink. You know, things like that. You know. Those were those were the predictions for Titanic. And then that first yeah. trailer came out. And to be fair, in the press, there was sort of tittering around it initially. But then when the movie dropped, it was like it was a cult because we still had a monoculture back then as well. Yeah. Everybody watched the same thing back then. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? In 97, if there was a big movie out, everyone saw it. Yeah. Because there weren't three big movies out on Friday and you didn't have to appeal to three different audiences mm-hmm. on a Friday. You didn't have 300 channels to appeal to 300 different audiences. It didn't work that way when Titanic was a thing. So you got more of a sense of how it stood in the cultural marketplace because that cultural marketplace was a lot narrower. Yeah. You wouldn't notice, we don't notice these things quite as much now, how the influence of something is a much more frivolous, uh, a viral moment, for instance, a lot more throwaway an occurrence now. Yeah. Um, how movies are perceived. Are you, I mean, there are certain takeaways. The, the cultural influence of Encanto may well, for instance, pr- uh, propel it to best picture, uh, best animated feature, sorry, uh, this year. But mm. that was probably going to happen anyway because it's the de facto Disney one of the year. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's always half of the best animated feature categories always Disney. That's <laughs> A guarantee, so they've always got a 50% chance of walking home with that Oscar anyway. Yeah. But Titanic and Cameron just holding up that statue and saying, I'm the king of the world. You know what? God damn, he really was. So much so that he literally got to write his own ticket forever and then spent the rest of his life, so well, to date, plumbing ocean wreckage and filming dances with Smurfs. It's a very, <laughs> and then nine sequels to it that I yeah. don't think we need, Jim. We don't need them. Can we please, please get you back to doing something original now? Just, just go go and do an action movie again, please. We need another True Lies. The world <laughs> needs a True Lies more than ever now. Yes, if you're listening, James Cameron, put down those Avatar sequels and uh, and, and make the something four, else. Four, five. Four. I, can't I think remember. there's. I think they've bumped it up to five now that Disney have taken over it. They need to. <laughs> they need to get that sort of forty odd billion back, don't they, from Fox? Apparently, apparently this time they're going underwater. I'm like, yeah, what a shock. Jim Cameron's <laughs> taking us underwater. Yay. Anyone else think this one was a long time coming? <laughs> yeah, it feels like, the, um, pardon the pun, but the ship has sailed in terms of, you know, anything they could do <laughs> to really kind of blow our minds at this point because it's been 13 years in the making. But I guess we'll, we'll wait and see. But that, that concludes our Oscar special. Uh, if you care enough to watch the ceremony you can do on now tv if you're in england or just on regular abc if you're if you're in america or somewhere illegal if you're anywhere else but van before we sign off uh, do remind us where we can hear you read your stuff and connect with you 
Oh, where can you? I'm, oh, I, I'm all over the place. I'm dotted all over the map. So, uh, I mean, let me see if I'm trying to do this in. I'm trying to do this in chronological order for you. So, typically, it's I'm in the Morning Star online on Thursdays, in print on Fridays, doing 50% of their. I do half of their film reviews with Maria Duarte. Um, I have the off-screen show with uh, with Bex, um, currently being guest hosted by our mutual friend Zara Feeland. She's she's guest uh, guest hosting this week, filling in for uh, Bex while she's doing NF. FT stuff at Mobile World Conference, I think it's called. Um, you can find us on podcast platforms 6am on Fridays, and I think 5.40 in the afternoon on Fridays, I do BBC Oxford Drive Time. I do their film reviews with Adam Ball, which is always a laugh. We, just, we have so much fun. And producer Stuart on that, he, he just indulges me some absolute insanity. Last week, they allowed me to tell the British public that they, this weekend they should go dogging with Channing Tatum. And they let me get away with that, which I thought was absolutely terrific. And then, of course, last but certainly by no means least, Friday mornings, very early Friday mornings. I've absolutely fucked up the chronological order of this, haven't I? Um, please bleep that. Um, uh, I think it's about four... 4.30 on a Friday morning, because we, we pre-recorded, we recorded at different times. I have the uh, the free view picks for the next three days with Paul Ross on, on TalkSport as part of uh, Overnights with Paul Ross. And, oh, my God, if you want to learn some fascinating, random things about movies, and this is me saying this, just just listen to Paul Ross in general, because he, he slips things in. He's one of the most incredible people to talk film with. Like, I, I will tell whoever will listen about... I will, I will honestly, I will sing the praises of Paul Ross as a, as a film mind forever. Um, the Wrong Ross got the, the film programme. That's, that's all I'm going to say. The, the, the Wrong Brother got the film future, in my opinion, because Paul Ross is just... A, he knows things about obscure westerns, French art house dramas from the 60s, all sorts... And just honestly, he can. I, 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 one of my dreams is to have some kind of throwback show, some retro cinema, some nostalgia cinema show with Paul Ross because it would be one of the most fascinating gigs you could ever have. So, I, my, my, my endorsement for Paul Ross right there. Absolutely, go and listen to him. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Van, thank you very much for being on the show today. It's been great, kind of reminiscing a bit guy and talking about the Oscars, which is something I don't get a chance to do very often. So thank you for, <laughs> for indulging me. It'd be my, my pleasure to actually have Oscar night with you one. If, I've, if I'm ever actually in a position where I have like an empty co-host slot on, a, on an Oscar night, I would definitely get you up. They never, whenever it's, whenever it's me and Bex, they never really give us a say and usually it ends <laughs> badly. Um, you know, there's, there's certain, because Oscar night is a very like, you know, it's a like high energy, very demanding night if you're a film critic so you, mm -hmm. it takes a certain kind of person to work with like you you need someone that you can find like very casual and easy conversation with it can't be difficult and, and that's mm -hmm. the, so you'd be very good to spend an oscar night with i think thank you very much i know i'm gonna hold you to that especially if it comes with a paycheck <laughs> so uh, well, yes if it ain't a paycheck, it ain't worth bothering. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Van, thank you very much. And uh, we'll get you back for a proper episode sometime. It will be my genuine pleasure, buddy. You call me up anytime. That's it for this episode of the Friday Film Club. I do hope you enjoyed it. And of course, you can listen back to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And remember as well to connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at the Fry Film Club. We will, of course, post links to all of our guest info in the show notes. So look out for that as well. Thanks for listening. <laughs>